And I tried, I mean, I tried even as a young age. I took him to therapy and, you know, and then I worried about him feeling, God, what's wrong with me? I'm different, how come I go to therapy, but my sister doesn't. But I wanted to do everything possible I could to help him. Welcome to The Narratives of Suicide, the podcast where we bring hope, community and a voice to those who've lost to suicide. It's where we dispel the myths of suicide. We dispel historical discourses and constructs that have been steeped in history for a very long time. And we're here with hope, love and support for everyone out there who needs to listen to this podcast. I'm so sorry you're here, but I do hope it can give you something to use in your healing process to be able to pick up the pieces of suicide and put them back together again in the best possible way that you can. Okay, so today we're here with Jill all the way from the tri-state area in New York City. Thank you so much for being here, Jill. Great to meet you after we've done a bit of chatting online. Great for you to be here today and share your story of losing your son, very sadly, Mike, six years ago. So it's great for you to be here and really looking forward to hearing your story. Even though it's never easy to hear stories like this, it's always such a humbling experience for me to hear. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, so six years. I mean, it's four years for me with my brother. They say time's a healer, and we've all got our views on that, I think. <laughs> yeah. But six years, again, it's still a drop in the ocean, isn't it, compared to... I mean, how old was Mike? Mike had just turned 30 on November 15th. Okay. Five weeks later, he took his life. Okay, so after his birthday. Christmas time as well, wasn't it? Which is unthinkable, 27th of December, which is so... Um, I can imagine anniversaries, yeah. It's the worst. Yeah. There is no merry Christmas, you know. It's really hard to be merry. And then two days later, I have this black cloud that I know is coming. And I try really hard, you know, to enjoy it because it was my favorite. It took me three years to put up a tree after Mike took his life. But it's a rough week for sure. Yeah, I can imagine. So there's no merry. It's Christmas now. Just Christmas will stop. And it's taking you the year three years just to put the tree up and start to celebrate. It's not even the right word, probably, is it? Just have the day as much as you need to have the day right now, I guess. Well, you know, you pull stuff out of boxes and there's ornaments that he made when he was in fourth grade. And so that hits me every time. And I felt in the beginning guilty that I would sometimes keep stuff in the box because it was so painful to see. And yet then I felt bad that I'm putting him in a box and my daughter's stuff is out. So what I had to do was put his things around the back of the tree just so it wasn't a trigger for me, but it was still up. And the stocking is another. It doesn't matter. If the stocking's up, I see it. If the stocking's down, I see it's missing. Mm. It doesn't. It, people don't realize. They think that after the funeral, it's over. Mm. But that's just the beginning. Mm. Yeah. And the triggers continue forever. Just different. Whether it's a corner street, you know, like you said, a pub. It could be a commercial on TV. You know, little things. And to other people, they don't know what triggers for me. I could look happy on the outside, but inside I'm crying. Mm. It doesn't stop. Yeah. I can hear how you're finding your little ways of coming through it all. Like you say, it doesn't matter if you put the stock in there or don't. Either way, it's difficult or you have thoughts around it and triggers. So how have you found 
best in inverted columns way inverted commas because there's no best way to do anything but to manage that if you just listened inside to what is right for you or asked other people? Yes, you know, people will suggest things and I understand and I appreciate it, but you have to do what feels right for you when it feels right for you, not have somebody push you because then you're doing it for them, but you're miserable. You know, and if I had done put up the tree the first year, I was devastated. I mean, I was in a dark, dark place when Mike first died. I mean, I couldn't even imagine putting up a tree and then seeing all these things and the remembrance of that he took his life two days after Christmas. So the tree, I was like, no, I'm going to put it up when I'm ready to put it up. And the third year I did it because my daughter was flying out here. You know what? I'm going to put a tree up this year for her to try to make it happy. Even though she never said, mom, why aren't you putting up a tree? She's always been whatever mom works for you, whatever makes you happy. She was worried about me. I mean, I was bad. You know, she already just lost her brother and she was afraid she was going to lose me. So you have to do what's right for you. Do not let people push you into pleasing them. So you did it for you. And then you did it for your daughter, I guess, as well, didn't you? But when you were ready to. Yeah, that is my driving force through my life. Since my diet has been my daughter, mm. she's a ray of sunshine. She was always my little happy Nicole, always. And poor Mike was up and down, you know. And there was times I remember him looking at her. She was always happy, always find something positive in everything. Mm. And he would look at her and he'd say to me, I wish I was more like Nicole. Mm. And as a six-year-old, I can't tell you, Sue, it broke my heart to think, here's this little boy noticing already that he's different. And it's written in my book about signs of depression in children, but who really knew about that kids at six years old could be depressed? Yeah, absolutely. So... I listened to it all. And I look, my kids, I never one thing about feeling ever that they didn't get enough or they didn't get enough of me or we were hands on very close, all of us. No one felt left out. But Mike was Mike, you know, on his good days. He was phenomenal. I called him my Jedi Knight. He loved Star Wars. Uh But truthfully, Sue, he had the dark side. He had that great Jedi Knight. When he was good, what a phenomenal person. I mean, people flocked to want to be around him. And I'm not kidding. And yet when he was in that way, he was Darth Vader. But remember, inside Darth Vader was really a good person, right? Yeah. But he had this dark side in him that, I tried to get my son to bring out the light more, but again, he refused help. And if someone refuses that, I can't make him. I wish he did. Yeah. I hear that a lot of just us left behind, looking back, wishing, I guess, that, yeah, that they would have taken any help, any guidance that we offered or any support. And I tried. I mean, I tried even as a young age, I took him to therapy and You know, and then I worried about him feeling, God, what's wrong with me? I'm different. How come I go to therapy, but my sister doesn't? Mm. But I wanted to do everything possible I could to help him. And then as he got older, of course, you can't make someone over 18, especially he was military. Ah, right. Okay. And when he got back, he was really tough. You know, they make you tough. Mm. You can't go in there and 
be this little pansy. <laughs> they teach you to not almost feel anything. Because wow. uh -huh. you can't kill the enemy if you're going to sit there and feel sorry. So I noticed the change when he got back from his second deployment. And Gosh. They program you. So you watched a lot, didn't you, from the age of, well, through his whole life, the ups and downs and the light and the dark and the being the mums. I can just hear this. I mean, I'm a mum of four teenagers, so I just know the sense of it doesn't matter what you try and do. You'll try and do anything you possibly can. But there's also a letting go of that at some point as they get older, because sometimes it doesn't matter how much you try. It is their life to live. And it's really difficult to do that, isn't it, as a mum? Really difficult, especially when they're struggling emotionally, because our hearts just break, don't they, at, at the thought of there's the powerlessness of it, I think, as mums, of that. Very much so. And the torture I saw him in, that he tried so much to hide from me. But as a mother, I knew. But again, Mike was very strong and very intense. And you can't make somebody... It's like an alcoholic, you know, you can't bring them to AA. Mm. They don't want to stop drinking. Mm. So I think if I obviously knew now he would have done that, I would have been so much more forceful and crying, probably begging on my knees, because I think Mike would have done more seeing what it's doing to me. But when he did get back, I remember saying, Mike, you know, why don't you go to the VA, which is our veterans, where the veterans go, it's a hospital and medical care, and it's covered by the military, right. you can go and maybe get some help, and maybe some medication can help you. It, it's helped a lot of people. And he said, are you kidding? It takes five weeks just to get an appointment, which he was right. Mm -hmm. And when you're in that state, you don't have five weeks. You need help, like, right now. And then he said, when you go back, you don't even see the same doctor. And I just thought, God, that's just awful. That's a whole nother story here. Yeah. With how bad the VA, the veterans are treated. Yeah, sure. Yeah, there was a sense that you knew he wasn't right for a long time. Mm -hmm. But still, there is such that shock. And I think people are misconceived about that, whatever the word is, in, in terms of there's a misconception around, well, you knew they were depressed for a long time, you know, it's still such a shock. It's one of those unfathomable things that anybody wouldn't think about with their loved ones and you don't go there in your mind of course you don't because it's the most unthinkable thing yeah I really never went there in my mind I Mike never tried to he never threatened I think I was more concerned that he would do something you know whatever break into a house or do something destructive but not really take his life and yet he never did any of that stuff mm. but you know Mike looked to everything else to make him happy and that is the biggest mistake whether it's a relationship a new video game a new truck and that's all short-lived and he was the most excited I saw him and then when it wears off you're back to being you yeah that's the society we live in today isn't it the quick fix the wanting more the wanting this that and the other to fix actually you can't run from what's inside can't you? you can't hide from it yeah that's why people self-medicate he didn't he didn't do that he had a beer here or two but you know mike was mike was mildly ocd right. type a people i mean they need to be in control of themselves to make sure that so he needed to be sharp and and everybody looked at him. He was the go-to guy for all his friends. The funniest person I think I've ever been around, to be honest with you. I mean, I would laugh till I almost <laughs> peed my pants. <laughs> Every room he was in, people just gravitated. You know, he was larger than life. And that's why I think the, the shock of that 
suicide to everyone was beyond devastation, not only to my family, but to his friends. I mean, everybody was speechless. And when you see all the people that suicide hurts, it's not just your mom, your dad, or whatever. It's like over 100 people within that victim circle mm-hmm. is affected. And Mike's uh, funeral, there was over 300 people standing room only. And I thought, wow, I don't even know that many people. Uh-huh. And they came for him. And I was blown away. I really was. And those were just the people that could make it. You know, a lot of his military buddies were, you know, in other states or countries and just couldn't come. But, and that's why I just cried looking at all of that, thinking, well, I did. I said it to him, you know, why couldn't you love yourself as much as all these people here do? Mm, sounds like a really strong man, you know, really with a strong, powerful character, really, to and the, the kind, yeah, the kindness. And he was always there. If you asked him to help you move, he would. He watches your dogs, he would. Not without bitching, but he'd do it. And he was such a soft soul, really. He was the exterior, like, I'm a tough dude. But inside, he really felt and he cared about people. And it was very much family-oriented. I mean, he would kill for his family. So I knew for him to take his life, knowing what it would do to us, he had to be in extreme pain. Mm. I'm actually thankful I got a text message. Not everybody gets a message, a letter, anything, a note. Mm. And then I thought in his moment of grief and loss of hope, he took the time to write us something. Mm. Did you know from the text or was it ambiguous, just I love you, mum kind of thing? I knew immediately he meant it. Immediately because he'd never done that. Never done that. It just started out. My dad was a veteran and he was buried at the Veteran Memorial Cemetery in Las Vegas there. And they were very close. And when my dad died, he died on the same day Mike was flying home from Iraq. And I had to greet my son with that news when he should have been, you know, greeted with such a welcome. Right. And he was so excited to come home. And I will never forget him wailing when I told him Pop died. And here I was fighting the happiness to see my son devastated. My dad died. It was terrible. He took his life out at the cemetery near my dad. Okay. So comforting for him. Yeah. In the text, I'm going out to visit Pop, but I'm not coming back. And I knew he meant it. And I just jumped up from the chair. I mean, I was like almost screaming, trying to call him and text him. He didn't answer anything. And he, you know, said he gave him a good life. And to remember the funny me, he said, because he was so funny. And I thought, he's sitting here writing this to us when his world was so dark. And so every time I go there to visit, he's buried there too. And I get to see that picture in my mind, Mike taking his life. Of course. Yeah. It's awful. Like I said, it's a life sentence, Sue. Yeah, and I think that's trauma as well. It's it's not just what we see or experience. It's what we imagine in our heads because we know how they did what they did. We heard how most, some of us do know how they did what they did and how they took their lives. And I think that's just something then, because they're so close to us, we put those thoughts in our heads just to make sense of it all. And 
that again is one memory that is one that just keeps popping back in with other experiences like we you know where you go like you know since the cemetery you're reminded it's like a visual image although we didn't see it it's crazy really to think our brains can do that that they're that powerful they can put a memory like that in our mind and it's such a violent one it's such a horrible one to live with especially you know if it's your child and You've had such a close relationship. Mike and I were two peas in a pot. Me, Mike, and my dad. We could just look at each other and know what we're thinking. Yeah. It was that type. So I just missed. It was such a loss, such an emptiness for me. I lost my fine dining partner. He loved good food. So did I. My comedy partner, I took him to Robin Williams and George Carlin and Chris Rock. And I mean, we saw everybody and Mike was so funny, like I said. So I lost a lot of the laughter because he made me laugh so much. And my dad too, but my dad was gone. Mm, not to come to terms with, isn't it? Such a lot. How do you come to terms with that? Like you say, it's a life sentence. How can you come to terms with that? How have you, to, to any degree? Come to terms, you mean, with Mike dying? Yeah, well, with all of it, like you say, your dad going, losing the laughter, having the memories, having the associations, having getting through the Christmases. And you say it's a life sentence. I'm just interested in how you survive a life sentence like that. Yeah, I call it a life sentence of pain is what someone leaves you with when they take their life. And that's why I say, don't ever do this. It is not the answer. And for me, I knew immediately I needed help. I needed therapy. This is too big for someone to just take on themselves and think, okay, you know, I'll be fine. Especially if you have other children to take care of or elderly parents or spouse. I mean, you're exhausted and drained just from the loss, let alone doing all these other things. It is so important for people to ask when you're looking for a therapist, are you a grief counselor? Do you understand suicide? not just a family marriage counselor. You need somebody that does understand this type of loss because they may not be able to help you. They may be the wrong person for you. And I was lucky to have found that. But I asked those questions when I sought someone out. What type of a therapist are you? And, you know, all this, because you could sit there and spend four months, four years with somebody and get nowhere because you were with the wrong person. And I love my therapist. I made both of them between Las Vegas and now that I live out here in New York area. They have me do things, not just sit and talk. Here's something I want you to work on Mm -hmm. over the next week or a project. Write this down. This was a great way to actually see where you are in your grief. But what causes your grief? I don't know. You might do it. It's a timeline. It's a line where you just have a line, right? And then above the line, starting with the earliest you can remember, the year and what happened that was so wonderful. And I'm not talking you got to buy an ice cream. I'm talking like you got married or things like that. We got a new dog. And you do all that. And then underneath is the year and the sadness of loss of your dad or whatever that was. And boy, and that's a great picture quickly for a therapist to be able to look and see your whole life in five minutes versus sitting there pulling this out of you at every session, which is only 45 minutes. It's going to take months. I thought that was phenomenal to have somebody do that to me. And boy, I even got to see where my sadness came from, right? I had more sadness 
than I did happiness. So it was an interesting, what's the word, Sue? You're the therapist. (laughs) What do you call it when you have us do a... It's a lifeline. We use it a lot in narrative therapy and narrative. Yeah, right. So, you know, I just thought, wow, that's really great. Even for yourself, just do it for yourself. And it really sort of hones in on where your problem started or where was the main thing that happened in your life that changed your life. Yeah. So that therapy, I think, is a must. This is not something that you could get through unless you didn't have much of a relationship to the deceased. Okay. Really helped you to sympathy, but to be challenged at the same time, met with somebody who understood grief on the deep level because it is such a deep thing. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I can't stress that enough. There's people that are out there with alphabets. I I kind of say this and not in a condescending way to you, Sue, as a therapist or anyone. There's a lot out there with alphabets after their name, right? MD, PhD. And yet real raw experience talking to someone who's been there is so much different than somebody that just learned in college. It's different. And I'm not saying they can't help you. But to find somebody like my therapist, her sister took her life. So she can understand suicide loss like you losing your brother. Mm-hmm. And she also ran the National Suicide Lifeline Prevention in New York City for 25 years. She was the director. So that was a big help. I didn't know this when I chose her because it didn't say all that. It was just on my insurance list. But something about her. And we have the same birthday. Oh. <laughs> we'll figure, right? I was supposed to meet her. So back to what is so key. If you have a support system around you, that's great. Unfortunately for me, those closest to me, not my daughter, but everyone else was the worst help for me. Mm. I got my best help from strangers, from support groups. I felt abandoned by my family, and I think they didn't understand depression. No one suffered with it. So sometimes people like us, I say us, in this club, I call it, people don't know what to do for you. And so they'd rather not be around you because sometimes the crying or the depression and being Debbie Downer can be too much for people to be around. And find your tribe, find somebody that listens to you and that you can talk to. So you have to learn that stuff, right? Yeah. Works and what doesn't. But I'm so proactive and I knew right away I needed help. I was open to medication because I was desperate. Mm. Anything that could help me, I will try. Because I was passively suicidal, not actively. And the difference to the listener, passive is, you know, you just don't want to wake up. You beg God to not make you. Active is you have a plan. I'm going to kill myself tomorrow and this is how I'm going to do it. But I just begged and begged and every day I woke up, I was so disappointed. I was alive. It was brutally painful. And my daughter was in college in another state, so I didn't see her. I didn't even have her around. And really, thank God, I didn't want her to see me that way. Mm-hmm. I felt like the worst mother mm-hmm. because I could just be in my room and not shower for days. I didn't care, Sue. I didn't care. I didn't care if I lost my home, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's just those small things like eating, drinking water, showering, standing up, going downstairs. It's all those small things, I think, in that deep grief. And they're exhausting. Yeah. To take a shower, I had to go nap after. I was exhausted. Yeah. Took so much out. Well, all the crying, you know, is draining. Emotional is just draining. 
and just trying to come. How did you go from there to where you are today, sitting here looking beautiful and... (laughs) Well, thank you. I know you have your glasses on. (laughs) Maybe you need to get those checked. I feel like, truthfully, I look at myself and I've aged 20 years just from grief. And that can do that to you. But what I've done to come this far, like I said, is you need to be diligent. You need to realize the other people out there in your life that need you whether it's your children, whoever that matters to you. And obviously, you still need to take time and grieve if you have to stay in your room all day. And in the beginning, that's normal, okay? Don't guilt yourself about it. I know mothers that didn't leave their room for weeks. But eventually, as the stages of grief that people can read about, and they need to really follow these stages of grief. My counselor said when he met me, Jill, this is going to be the hardest work you have ever done. And I thought, work? What's he talking about, work? Well, the seven stages of grief are work. And people can look that up. But the first stage is shock. And then denial. And then, you know, all those things. So you have to go through them and make yourself. There's no right or wrong which way to do it. But you've got to. And so the first year after the fog lifted and the the shock wore off, wow. That second year was brutal because the reality set in and I knew my son wasn't coming back. Yeah. I took the advice of medication. I'm still on it. I think God invented it to have it. It's not for everybody, but I needed it. And uh, I mean, so that was a lifesaver for me. I'm still in therapy instead of once a week now, I'm every other. But, and there's times if I need to call, you know, Amy, Within a two days after my therapy, she would fit me in. She, We have a great rapport. But you have to really take care of yourself, especially, like I said, if you have other people that need you. Because think about what that loss did to you. Imagine what you're doing to someone else that you're not there for them. When you're that low, you can guilt yourself out with that, can't you? You can guilt yourself out with, I'm not downstairs with my other children or my husband or whoever. I'm not being there for them. And it's knowing, isn't it, when to oscillate between the two, between the I can grieve now, I this is time. Now is the time to do something else. And it's only you that's going to know that. And I think those stages of grief, are, are, like you said, they're, they can come at different stages. They're right. not exactly a linear line either. They shift and they change depending on you and your relationship with the person. Mm-hmm how you everything all the feelings that come up exactly from guilt to all sorts of different feelings and you ride those waves don't you and it's never nothing wrong with any of yeah there's nothing wrong with how you feel there is no right or wrong we've all got a critical voice everyone's got a critical voice it keeps us alive this critical voice we've got in our mind keeps us from you know running down the road naked right because we have behavior to be human and live with each other that it takes that critical judge inside to watch our behavior and to tell us when we're doing something right or wrong and right and that critical voice is so unhelpful i think in grief because when we start to go down the road of i should have Mm. i wish i'd have i should be downstairs right now with my daughter i should be doing this right now that's the voice that critical voice that why am I doing this? Why am I behaving like that? That's the critical voice you've got to be re- pay real attention to and say, ah, that's just my critical voice. It's not true. Yeah. It's not true. Yeah. And you have to listen to what's best for your well-being, but also talk to your family. Talk to them if you're feeling, I'm sorry, I'm up in my room all day, or mommy's so sad. And that way, they're just not, you know, kids, if they're young, aren't sitting there looking like, what's happened to mom? You know, we're going to lose mom too. And or forcing children to talk about maybe their sibling 
if they're not ready right. and or their parent that they lost. So I think a good dialogue is important to be able, like I would tell my daughter, I'm so sorry, Nicole. I'm so sorry that I'm so not there. I'm just lost without my kid. It has nothing to do with me not loving you. Yeah. And she knew that. I mean, my daughter, she was 25 when Mike took his life. She was, And she lost her hero. My daughter almost fainted when my ex told her. Yeah. So it was, and I picture that in my mind too, that happening. Her face went almost green from the news. So for her, her way of dealing with it is too painful. She talks about Mike in all the great ways and the funny stuff, but she does not want to talk about that day. And that's okay. You know, I mean, I wish she would a little bit more, but I understand. I understand it's painful. (laughs) That's why it's called work, right? Yeah. You do need to deal with it. And there's days I just want to push it out of my mind and say, okay, it didn't really happen. Mike's somewhere in his apartment and in the military and he's still here. And then days it'll hit me and I'm on the floor just sobbing. And you sob till you are cried out and then you pick yourself back up and you go on. In the beginning, Sue, I remember saying, I'll never get through this. I will never get through this. I don't want to live without my son. I don't want to live. And I ended up in a 72-hour watch, not because I threatened to kill myself, but I was so hysterical that when they ask you questions, and two main ones, I'm sure you know this, do you have pills, right? Do you have pills at home? Yeah. I mean, I think most people have pills of something, whether it's pain pills or something. And do you have a gun? And I own a gun. My whole family, Nevada is a carry state, you know. And so those two answers put me in a three-day hold so that they could make sure I didn't take my life. And I couldn't believe, like, what am I doing in here? They let me out a day earlier than the three days because the psychiatrist knew she doesn't really belong in here. But wow. So that was part of your journey of recognizing that, yeah, I'm grieving. This is how bad grief has got that's brought me here because this isn't me. No, no, I wasn't suicidal. But I have to tell you, I had major depressive disorder, PTSD from the shock of that text coming through. Mm -hmm. And then I have panic disorder. I get panic attacks where sometimes I leave my basket in the grocery store and I just have to leave. I can't stay. You know, it's gotten better. But in the beginning, something would remind me. I'd go down the aisle and there'd be something like life, a cereal. And I just had to get out of there. Or when people ask me when you're checking, how's my day? And now to really look at people and think, what story do they have? What story is in their life, right, that is hidden behind that smile? that we don't see, that we think, wow, they look beautiful. They've got, they're dressed to the nines. They look like a million bucks. And we think their life is great. They have a beautiful car and a house. And that that makes them all their life perfect. Well, it's not true. We all know that. And I started now to be more aware of that. I've become much more empathetic since my son took his life about people that suffer. But even a waitress in a restaurant, I have more patience even for poor service. You know, maybe her husband just left her with five kids and she's trying to do the best she can. You just don't know, that's it. Yeah, I mean, just don't be so quick to discard people like, oh my God, this is shitty service and can you get me blah, blah, blah. And we just kind of bitch and moan at people. It's like, Jesus. So I've learned to, I've always been perceptive of people anyway. And I really like to study people and what makes them tick. 
But even more so now, I really look at what really is behind those sad eyes or that smile and take more time to listen to people. Listening is an art and people don't have the time, right? Why didn't you call so-and-so? Oh, I don't have any time. Mm -hmm. Really? Well, then as soon as you hear they took their life, right? What's the first thing most people say? I wish I'd run them more. I wish I'd spoken to them more. I wish I would. I meant to call them. I really wished I would have called. Well, now's the time to do that, guys. If you know somebody who is suffering from any depression of any level, please pick up that phone. They would actually love that you show you care. You know, you don't have to cure them, but pick up the phone just to say, how are you doing? Are you suicidal? Ask that question. One in four people suffer with a mental disorder. You know somebody right now, those that are listening, that is suffering right now that could be great at hiding it. Yeah, because there's those wishes, isn't there? Those wishes. And we wish now that for everybody else in the world who hasn't been where we've been to wish, we wouldn't wish any of this on our worst enemies. So it's like saying, just value those relationships you've got, value them and just keep doing as much as you possibly can. Don't ever be too busy. Because if they're an important friend or family member, just make the phone calls because like we found, it could be too late sometimes. And then you're living with that. And that is usually the case, right? And then you're at their funeral. And we can't live with a fear of suicide happening in our lives. Of course we can't, you know, and I wouldn't want anyone to live with that fear. But just it's just about valuing the relationships we've got more because we live in a world where we don't, where it's too busy. Yes. And that's something I don't buy. I don't buy, I'm not an excuse person where, you know, I'm too busy or I'll call you later. Or I'm met. You know what? Look, we all make time for what we want to do, right? Whether it's go to the gym, see a concert, we have time for all that, but we don't have time to pick up the phone for 10 minutes mm-hmm. and say, how are you doing? Yeah. Because people don't want to hear somebody complain. Yeah. And the ones that are suffering a lot of times take their life because they feel they're a burden to everybody. Yeah. Nobody wants to be around them. Nobody cares. And just that 10-minute call can make a big difference in someone. And it doesn't have to be someone you know well. It could just be anyone. How can human life be so unimportant? I think that makes us really question human life, doesn't it? It makes <sighs> puts a, it sounds as if it really put you in a completely different headspace in terms of how you saw people and how we view life as completely differently, I think, after it. It's just life never the same. It's oh. quality of life. I put on music. Everyday music is like feeds my soul and whatever makes you happy. You know, the therapy helped. Music's helped. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah. Whether it's laying on the floor, just looking up at the ceiling. You've written a book. So it helps, do you think, your aftermath of suicide? That's what it's called. Is that what the book's actually called? No, my site is called Uh aftermathofsuicide.com, which I do offer services there for people to speak to someone that's been through this one-on-one, even a small group, because a lot of times we all learn from each other, but, you know, not more than 10. And of course, I'll speak at churches or schools or whatever by Zoom right now. But my book is called Overcoming a Life Destroyed, The Devastating Impact of Mental Illness, How It Took My Son's Life and Almost Mine. Ah, okay. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And I'm very raw in that book, but it's not just about my son or my life. It's what you can do through the steps, what you can do to help others that suffer when you don't. 
the signs of depression in children because parents think like I did, right? Oh, boys will be boys. Mike was just being destructive or irritable because he's a boy. No, a lot of that is signs of depression. And I didn't know that. So it's very informative on many levels for different people. If you buy it on my website, it's free shipping in the US. But All of the proceeds go to Wounded Warrior Project and Tunnel to Towers, which helps our veterans, which they need it. If you go through Amazon, you can, but he takes 45% of my money. Can you believe that? 45%. Yes, Jeff Bezos, I am going to say this because you shame on you for being worth $200 billion. He is the richest man in the world. 45% they take. And I don't even offer a Kindle, Sue, because I made zero. So how am I going to even put any proceeds to anything if I'm making nothing? I said, this is absurd. So going to my website, all of that money goes. Isn't that awful? Wow. I mean, I'm on all major bookstore websites online, but Amazon is the biggest, but they take the most. Wow. Okay. So go to your website to get it for sure. And it's aftermathofsuicide.com. I'm also on Instagram, aftermathofsuicide.com, Facebook. My name's the same on any site. Mm-hmm. My podcast on Anchor, you could either put in my name, it'll come up that way. What was it like writing that book? Was it, um, did you find it helpful? Was it difficult? Did it, did it, you know, help you in any way or not? The beginning was extremely hard, obviously, having to relive that text message and relive everything I went through. Mm. But it was also cathartic because I knew I could help other people. And that was my sole purpose of writing. And I cried through it. And I have pictures in there. So I can't even to this day look at my son's face and his pictures. Mm-hmm. Can't. I can like skim over it, but I can't look right at his face. Yeah. So it was hard. But yet, like I said, I knew if I could help somebody and if other people buy it and give it to someone that they know sort of struggles with whatever, it might save their life. And we all need to pay it forward. And it's only $17.95. It's not a lot of money. People spend that on a drink. Yeah. And those proceeds go towards Mike as well, isn't it? And they, believe me, they come home with no legs, no arms. Mm. Their spouse left them. PTSD. It's a great, those are two great foundations. And that's part of your healing with Mike as well, isn't it? To do what you can now for those people yeah. by putting the proceeds towards it. I would want to do more. You know, it just gets, I want to do more for them. 22 veterans a day take their life. And that is tragic. I'm living my life, Sue. You know, after you lose a child, I'm not afraid of anything. Mm. COVID's the least of my problems. Yeah, I think that's the shift it makes, doesn't it? Into our existential beliefs, everything just it gets turned on its head and everything changes. Gosh, yeah. after you've lost a child or somebody close to you by suicide, you realize, oh my God, just in an instant, your life changed. And so what are you going to do? Wait around till life's perfect? That's never going to happen right? And I'm 63. And this is the best I'm going to feel right now. And I'm not being pessimistic. I'm a realist. I'm 63. I'm not going to feel like I'm 20 ever again. I've had two hip replacements, two back surgeries, seriously, a cervical fusion, a torn rotator cuff repair. I was in a car accident. So I'm just now recovering from my second hip replacement. And between that and my son dying, I'm not waiting. I want to live my life now. 
while I can. Uh-huh. Yes, if I could say that to people, I urge you to stop being fearful. Now, if you're compromised and you know, you're elderly, that's different. I'm not saying everybody just get out there and don't care, but I wear my mask when I need to. But come on, this lockdown. I think that's it. Respect to the people's wishes. Wear masks when you need to. Right, exactly. If somebody's not comfortable with me not wearing it, I'll put one on. But for me, in my house or being around my friends, we don't wear one. I don't walk around outside with a mask on. I think there's somehow we've got to come to peace with we can't change the world, but we can change our little pocket of the world. We can nudge the system where we can. And I think with your book and your website, that's where you're nudging the system, helping those people that reach out to you. And if anybody's listening that wants to reach out, you know, if you've lost a child. Yeah, I try. I do my best to, if we change, things change. All we can change is us. And people can also reach me at jill at aftermathofsuicide.com if you have any questions or anything for me. That's great. People live your life, reach out to people that you know need it. Sue, you're wonderful. You're just such a sweetheart. And for those people that don't know what she looks like, she is beautiful with locks of gold, just beautiful curly hair. (laughs) Oh my God. I mean, it's just... I know, it's so nice to speak to you and hear, especially from across the world like this and just be... Again, I always say this, but we're stronger together to know that, okay, it's not exactly the same story as mine. Of course, it's not. We're so different and unique in our own stories. And our loved ones' stories are unique. And it's great to have heard Mike's story and like my brother's story are their stories too. And they're also unique and complicated and heavy. And we all go on all these journeys with them to the point where now we can be here together in union and say, yeah, we don't have to say how it feels in terms of being together. But that is just, for me, a crucial part. And absolute crucial part and it's a real honor to be here with you and hear how you're still sitting here after everything you've been through so thank you I really appreciate the platform of course I've left out many things but besides my son taking his life six months later my then husband left me by a text message so there was a lot of I had loss after loss after loss and it, it was just I was getting plowed so it's all in the book but uh-huh. and that's why I, I'm like I can't even believe I'm standing today. Yeah. But I'm also proud that I am, and that's why people need to be proactive. Yeah, I'm proud. You know, and to say they're proud when they're proud, proud to be still here. Proud to be still here. And doing what you've done, and even with a small smile on your face, that's fantastic. Yeah, and to have my daughter say, "Mom, I'm really proud of you." Uh, yeah, because she knows how you couldn't even say Mike's name. I mean, it was just, oh my God, when I look back, how far I've come. So people, you can get through this. You will make it. I know I was told that in the beginning and I thought there's no way I'm going to make it. You will smile again. You will laugh again. Oh, we'll leave it on that note. You will laugh again. You will smile again. That's from Jill. Thank you, Sue. God bless you. Thank you so much. Keep in touch. Thanks so much for joining us here today. I hope it's served you and given you something for your journey with suicide. Come back and subscribe, like, do whatever you need to do on your platform to help us to raise awareness of suicide because the more we keep saying the word, the more we can gain support for us left behind and the more we can raise awareness of the word and how society sees it and reduce this stigma that's so attached to it. Please get in touch. You can find me on my website, suicidegriefsupport.com. I really want to hear from you. But for now, 
please take care of yourselves and take care of each other. And remember, we are stronger together. <laughs>